DSC is a team of 33 people across Australia, all working together to bring specialised training and consulting expertise to providers in the disability sector. A quick note that this week we're taking it back to an earlier, more innocent time before COVID-19 when we recorded this beautiful episode with Kirsten Dean. It's one of our favourites. Enjoy. All right, here's what's going to happen now. Hello and welcome to our podcast. We are DSC. Your turn. You're the boss. Disability Disability done done different, different. candid conversations. Hope you're ready because we're starting. Welcome, Kirsten Dean, to Disability Done Different Candid Conversations. And welcome, Evie. And welcome, Maya. Hey. Hello. So, Evie and I were talking this morning, and we are genuinely excited to have you in the studio, Kirsten. There's there's so much about you that we're interested in, but we also genuinely like you. We had um, dinner with you not that long ago, and you came home singing Kirsten's praises. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're fans, basically, so it's great to have you in the studio a little bit about Kirsten's background, and you'll fill in more as we go. Prior to the disability sector, but even in the dis- in the, the work you did before in academia and in journalism, you were interested in disability, but then came and were instrumental in the shutout report, a driver of the early Australian Counts campaign and, and right through to it becoming successful, and we'll certainly be talking about that. You went and worked in the NDIA, and then um, return to every Australian Counts. So I'm often involved because I've got three adult daughters in talking about careers and career choices. And do you put very bloody difficult in the search engine when you're looking <laughs> for, for your next career move? Because it seems that you take on some really difficult tasks and you've even gone back and said, well, that was really freaking hard. I think I'll do it again. <laughs> um, I don't... I- Uh, it's funny, I don't perceive them as difficult and possibly the things that you might be thinking are difficult about them are probably not the things that I find. So I probably, I think the thing that, I think the job that I've got now running every Australian Counts is an incredible privilege. I get to talk to people with disability and their families every day um, and then I um, have a chance to um, gather up all what I'm trying to do is gather up all their, their experiences and play that back to the NDIA and play that government and say this is what's not working this is what needs to change and this is what people with disability kind of want so that's the incredible privilege I, every single day I get to see the amazing things that the NDIS does and I get to see the absolute crap where it lands people and I get to see everything in between so like I think I've got a privileged job the part that I find tough about it, I suspect is not the thing that you might think is tough about it, is that um, I've, because I am a parent, I have a daughter with disability, um, uh, I have uh, lots of friends who have disability, I have lots of friends who have kids with disability, um, these are my peeps, this is my community, these are, these are my people. Um, and when I have to sit beside someone and hear again how, how they're not getting what they need from the NDIS and the kind of, you know, um, the crap they've put been put through and how stressed um, and how overwhelmed and, and they are and to have to sit next to someone and give them tissues while they cry and things like that, that's actually... Um, the hardest part of my job because I'm just these are my people and my heart breaks for them so I suspect so that might the toughest part of my job is is that I'm part of this community I identify with everyone and when I hear these kind of heartbreaking stories my heart breaks and so I go home and cry Mm. Um, and so I uh, so I that's the part of the job 
that I actually find tough. that they're, they're oh, tough. I'm guessing at what you think I might find <laughs> tough because you, you said it a couple of times. And I followed um, Kirsten after she left the National Disability and Carers Alliance to be executive officer post-Kirsten. And there's a couple of things about that. One is I always felt like the great pretender and I'd always introduced myself as the new Kirsten. And everything had been achieved by the time I turned up at the <laughs> National Disability and Care Alliance. And the NDIS was very much happening due to a lot of the work that Kirsten and, and other colleagues had done. And... It was just a weird situation to be in something so successful as it was being successful, but not being responsible for it. So I had to um, a number of times say, I'm the new Kirsten, but I'm not Kirsten and Kirsten did this before me. But what I found difficult in that role was the politics, the herding cats. the And, and one of the questions I wanted to ask, which is deeply sincere, is how have you managed to get so much done without pissing people off because I've never heard a bad word about you and I've been around a lot of circles um, where you're circling. Uh, I'm going to say I, um, <laughs> I think I have managed to piss some people off along uh, along the way and I think if you talk to some people in government you won't get quite um, a good a re- as a, a review. Um, I, I don't know why. You'd have to ask other people. I can answer. Yeah, Yeah, I have a theory because Roland mentioned before that we had dinner a few months ago. And just before you came, I I was saying to dad, Kirsten has this amazing ability to really challenge you and and like tell you you're wrong about something, but in a way that doesn't feel threatening. And I was just reflecting on this conversation that you and I had had where I was saying how much I love this YouTuber who interviews different people with disability. And you were just sort of gently questioning me why do you find that interesting? Like, what what is it about watching these people that's novel or interesting to you? And I had to kind of go away and be like, huh. That was, you know, like, it was, a, it was a really challenging question in front of, like, quite a few people I really respect too, and I didn't feel threatened at all, which was, like, And quite... you're still thinking about it. Yeah, exactly. I've got the, the voice in my head sometimes, actually, even when I'm just walking down the street and see someone interesting who may or may not have a disability, I've kind of got the Kirsten voice in my head that says... Now, why do you find that person interesting? <laughs> I think uh, I I guess what I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to live my values. I have a set of values and I'm trying to live them. So I want to be the person who kind of walks the walk and just doesn't kind of talk the talk. Um, and I guess I try and I'm also trying to be genuine. I'm also like I'm you know, I'm a journo. I love asking questions. I'm genuinely curious mm-hmm. kind of about the world. It's great quality. Um, uh, and so I do, I wanted, genuinely wanted to know what is it that you find interesting about it? And I think one of the ways you build um, relationships and consensus is by trying to understand where people are coming from and, and then trying to move forward mm-hmm. with that. And sometimes the moving forward is, you agree sometimes the the moving forward is yeah i kind of see your point but i kind of don't agree um and sometimes there's a compromise but i think one of the things that really distresses me about where we are now both in civil society and in politics is that um we are doing two things we are either in our own bubbles only talking to people who agree with us and who think similarly in us and that kind of happens it's like it's human nature you tend to be friends with people who you know have similar interests and kind of common set of values and things but there is a sort of a bit of a, a bubble thing happening and then what happens is that 
um, trying to speak civilly and have a genuine public discourse about issues that are tough um, has become inside because everyone ends up just yelling at each other mm-hmm. um, uh, and and yelling that the other side don't understand without which is what I kind of would prefer to do is if we sit down try and understand different perspectives we might not get there and we still might not agree but I don't want to stand there and yell at you if I haven't really thought about it from your side of the table. I also read online, Kirsten, that you started a PhD after your daughter was born. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It was actually before she was born. So I started, uh, for all of my sins, I started my uh, life as a journalist um, and I got a bit frustrated with that and I kind of moved into academia. Um, And so all of my academic work, my research interest was always in disability. I've had a really strong interest in disability for a really long time. Um, And uh, I went over to the University of California at Berkeley to start a PhD um, and the PhD was looking at social and cultural attitudes towards intellectual disability mm-hmm. um, and then while we were there Sophie um, who's our eldest daughter who has Down syndrome was born so I've always had a really strong professional interest in disability and then we had Sophie and it, the professional became very personal. Did you ever finish the PhD? No. <laughs> but you did. it's a bit of a sore it's a bit of a sore point I didn't ever finish it I suspected you might not have and actually I was saying to Roland before we started this is one of my favorite things about you because maybe this is revealing more about me than you but I think it's so cool that you didn't finish a PhD about societal attitudes towards disability but you did write the shutout report which is arguably one of the most influential pieces of writing that's ever been done in Australia's disability sector on that topic and I mean, you know, we could argue about the importance of academia versus the importance of papers like that. But wow, you know, what an outcome and what an important. So can we just reflect on that for a moment? We uh, interviewed Jordan O'Reilly a little while ago. I don't know if you got to hear it or not, Kirsten, but he, he he's fantastic. But he's the darling of the industry. Everybody's talking about Jordan or talking to Jordan. And he quotes the shutout report. Um, from verbatim, memory, from yeah. From memory. He, he gives us a quote. And we've talked to Rhonda Galbally and we've talked to a bunch of people and shutout keeps coming back. Why do you reckon that is? Uh, I think for a couple of re- for a couple of reasons because it was a, it was a moment. Um, so what the shut what people don't remember is that shutout was written because um, there was a promise to do a national disability strategy, and before the government went out and did the national disability strategy, they promised that they would go out and talk to Australians with a disability, their families, people worked in the sector about what the issues were. So the information that fed into shutout was born of those consultations, um, and those consultations were carried out by the National People with Disability and Carers Council that I was on um, at the time. Um, and to be honest, I, th- nothing that came up in the consultations for the National Disability Strategy was new. We heard lots of stories that we, you know people had told many, many times before. Um, uh, and um, But what hadn't been done before is perhaps um, it, telling those stories to the rest of the Australian public in a way that they could grasp yeah, and yeah. and was relatable. So I think um, uh, I think what I was trying to do with Shut Out was that I'd been to many of the consultations, I'd read the submissions, I'd read and heard what people had to say, and what I was trying to do was bring it to a story together for the rest of the Australian public about what everyday life was like for people with disability. What were the kind of problems that people faced every day and what needed to be done about them? Because 
The real issue was that people, I didn't think that unless you were a person with a disability or a family member, you didn't understand what the issues were and you weren't be, you weren't be concerned about them if you didn't know what they were. You can't um, get involved if you don't understand that there's a problem. So what I was trying to do with Shut Out was reach out beyond people with disability and their families and tell their stories to a broader public in a way that um, would make a difference and that was true I, I mean, I read all those submissions and they were heartbreaking. And so what I, I felt this incredible responsibility to try and bring that together in a way that would touch people in the way that it kind of touched me. And so I think it was just because it wasn't – what I was trying to do was not write another dry government report that would sit on a shelf somewhere. What mm. I was trying to do was tell a story that other people would read and get a hold of and say, we've got to do something about this. It was a seminal piece. It was a turning point piece for – a lot of work that followed, a lot of work that you were involved that followed. I'm really curious to hear your perspective. The state of politics today is all about shouting and and really having a lack of consensus anywhere. And the NDIS, at least at its beginning, was kind of an exception to that. It's a very rare piece of policy that's had bipartisan support. And we can list, you know, dozens of other policies and equally worthy causes that should have had that type of support and didn't. What do you think it is about the NDIS that have managed to get that kind of bipartisan support, you know, at the beginning and now as well, in, in principle, if not in detail? Yeah, I think it was... Um, so the reason that I... So it's interesting. I've been asked lots of times, what do you think the secret of um, Every Stoning Counts was? Um, And to me, um, I think it's a funny question because I don't really think it's a secret. It was an old-fashioned grassroots community um, uh, campaign. Um, It is just... It had all the hallmarks of all the usual things that people do, you know, for grassroots community uh, change. Um, And I think the the reason it was successful is because... um, The people who worked on the campaign created a vehicle, they created a platform, they created some opportunities, but it was people with disability and their families who did all the hard work. They took it and ran with it. So why does the scheme have really strong bipartisan support and why does it still have really strong? Because people with a disability and their families went out and changed people's minds Mm -hmm. Um, and they told their stories. They told their story about what their life was like now and what it could be like under an NDIS and that's what changed politicians' minds. When we started um, uh, Every Australian Counts, we had so many challenges in getting this big complicated idea up. Um, you know, we didn't, um, disability issues were very low on the political totem pole. There was very little political will to do anything about it. It wasn't a great understanding in the Australian community about what the issues were that faced people with disability in their families. So there was even less willingness to do anything about it. It was a very hostile political environment. We're talking about the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd-Abbott kind of years. It was a very hostile, nasty um, uh, period of time in our, in our political life. We didn't have uh, any money to run a really big, fancy um, uh, lobbying campaign. Now, right around the time that Every Australian Counts was running was when there was a, the proposal for a mining tax. And the miners threw everything at that to get that down and it, got, and it sunk kind of mm-hmm. without a trace because they had the money to do it. We didn't have the money to do those kind of things. But what we had was people with disability in their families. Mm-hmm. And it was those people going to see their local MPs. It was talking to people in their community. It was talking to people in their families. It was holding events. They did all the hard work. Every Australian Council belongs to them and the success of it belongs to them. And it was them that built the bipartisan support for the scheme. 
you did it again. You just um, deflected away. From <laughs> yeah, I did it away a little bit. Yeah, exactly. That's a, it's a it's a real skill. Was there a moment in those few years? It's three to four years of really hard work, where you thought, "Oh shit, this is not going to happen." Um, I used to lie awake in bed and worry that it wouldn't, because the story of the NDIS is that there was a proposal for something like the NDIS sitting uh, in the um, Senate um, in the Whitlam years. So it got through the lower house, it was sitting in the Senate, and then Whitlam was dismissed and it never saw the light of day again. So that was like 30, you know, 30, 35 years kind of before. Um, And so the moral of the story is if you miss your shot, it doesn't come around again. But there were so many moments where the wheels could have fallen off. Yeah. Was there any one particular one? No, it was a constant, a constant worry. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was a constant worry that it could, because, um, you know, you have to, when you're trying to get something as big as the NDIS, you have to get political support, you have to get community support. And the bit that everyone forgets, you also have to get bureaucratic support. If the boffins in, if the public servants are in, in treasury. Um, in treasury or in what was then Faxia, were arguing against this, it made your life even harder. Yep. So you had like you had firefights going on on multiple kind of fronts. And so yes, at any at any one given time, you know, you you knew you were up against it. And I. And I felt that weight really heavily. I felt it for all the people that I'd spoken to and that I knew who were depending on it. And, um, you know, I also had a personal, really personal interest in this, in that my daughter was one of, and we were one of those families that never got any support. Um, And so her future was riding on it and the future of my other children were riding on it. Without an NDIS, the story is that once parents are no longer around to provide support and care for um, a person with a disability, often other family members, including siblings, then have to take on that role. So um, it's not just Sophie's life that was riding on the NDIS, but it was also my other two kids. And like never get in the way of a mother, you know, (laughs) trying to fight for something for her kids. So, yeah, there were – there wasn't one moment where I thought, oh, shit, this is all going south. It was – Constant. It was constant. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the most beautiful moments of all of Every Australian Counts is uh, Sophie's also a photographer and and Sophie's taken a photo of – Julia Gillard. Julia Gillard. And – so, and it's funny how that how that came about was um, uh, we had been invited to see Victoria sign on to the NDIS at an event, um, and prior to that, a few weeks ago, uh, before that, Sophie and I had been invited to meet with Julia Gillard and Jenny Macklin to talk about their support for the NDIS in a small group of people with disability and their families. It wasn't a big group; it was just a small group. Yeah. And Sophie had taken um, a very, very um, a great liking to Julia Gillard. Um, uh, that day Um, so much so to my horror (laughs) we were sitting down to have a cup of coffee um, and Sophie um, plopped herself down in Julia Gillard's lap (laughs) to have her coffee and I was like it's the prime minister (laughs) and then next to her was Wayne Swan and Sophie's friend Julian plopped 
plopped himself down on Wayne <laughs> Swan's yeah. um, on Wayne Swan's lap. So Sophie had taken a shine, and so a few weeks later, we were invited to to see Victoria sign on to the NDIS. Uh, but the event had gone on way, way, way too long. There'd been lots of speeches and lots of formalities and things like that. And Sophie had got um, very bored and very restless, and I felt was in danger of interrupting proceedings. Um, and so we had given her. Um, our camera to take photos um, because she liked the camera and she liked taking photos and it was something she really enjoyed and also we knew that she would focus on that um, and then not get distracted by kind of other things and so she had been doing that and then um, when the formalities were over she was still taking photos and um, uh, the Prime Minister was leaving, Julia Gillard was leaving and uh, Sophie asked to take her photo and Julia leant down and let Sophie take her photo. So that's and it happened by... It's a wonderful photo, and we'll include a link to it in the show notes. Definitely, yeah. People want to see that photo. Yeah, and it happened by it happened by accident, you know. And funnily enough, on that day, Sophie took a beautiful photo of Rhonda Galvelli. A really lovely photo that I really love and really treasure. No one's ever commented on that. <laughs> Everybody focuses on the, the, the Julia photo. Yeah. Well, it's the photo that Julia Gillard then used in her social media yes. accounts, right? She really she liked still the does. photo. Yeah. 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 I'd, so, said. Evie's can we don't spend too much time talking about the NDIS and that we, did, we get a bit personal, but I, I have to ask you, why did you go back? So, back to Every Australian Counts, back to somewhere you'd been before after you'd been at the National Disability Insurance Agency, that was an unusual career move. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so a little bit of the backstory is that um, I left every Australian Counts in a big hurry um, uh, and not um, and in, in really difficult circumstances. So I was busy um, working with the National Disability and Carers Alliance, working on every Australian Counts, and then my husband had a stroke. Um, and so I didn't leave um, uh, to move on to something else. I left because my husband had a stroke and um, I needed to um, not work so I could keep the family um, uh, together. So, um, uh, and then, and so that took a little, that took quite some time. Um, uh, and then once um, I felt that I had enough um, space in my life to go back to work, the agent, the National Disability Insurance Agency offered me a job. And I thought long and hard about taking it. I've never been a public servant before, and I suspected that I wouldn't be a very good public servant. Um, uh, but I felt a real sense of responsibility having fought for the NDIS. I wanted to help build it and shape it. And there's two ways to do that. You can do it on the outside or you can do it on the inside. And I thought, well, I've had a go at doing it on the outside. I'll have a go at doing it on the inside. Um, And so I took the job at the agency, not because, not for a career move, but because I had this really, really, you might say, eldest girl sense of responsibility that I'd fought for this thing. And then I wanted to actually help shape it and help, um, help, help it come to fruition the way that I had always imagined it and the way that I thought people with disability in their families had always imagined it. So that's why I took the job at the agency to try and kind of do change from the inside. Um, and there was a it, um, and as I suspected, I don't think I was a very good public servant. Um, I found it really hard to have to always ask permission to do things. You know, I'd come, um, you know, I like the idea of coming up 
with an idea in the morning and then have it by lunchtime, it's kind of done, which is not really how it works in a bureaucracy. Um, uh, And so I was finding that frustrating. Um, And then the other thing was is that we live in Melbourne, but the agency was in Geelong and I was spending a lot of time driving backwards and forwards from, you know, Melbourne to Geelong. And that was hard on our family, um, family life. So, um, and at the same time, again, I was really worried about the direction things were heading. So I decided that it was time to cause trouble from the outside (laughs) um, again. So I don't see it as an unusual move. I see it as like trying to do change from the inside, trying to do change from the outside so uh, i i can see how it still um, just trying to do change yeah, yeah it is that's that's the kind of common kind of thing and i tried to have a go on the inside um and then now i'm back still on the outside trying trying to change trying to get the scheme working the way that i think people with disability and their families really want and really deserve yeah i do sympathize with the people still trying to fight on the inside i have to assume that most people who work for the national disability insurance agency do so because they want to be a part of a really positive change and they, they get so much flack, not least of all from us. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's tough trying to make change in that kind of context. Yeah, and I think you're right. I mean, these were people, my colleagues, and for, for vast majority of them, they were there because they believed in this vision of this thing and they wanted to try and make it happen. But, they, but the people in there have a really hard – they don't have enough resources mm-hmm. to do their job. There's not enough people to do the work that they've been given to do, and they cop – a lot of um, internal and external criticism. It's a really hard, mm-hmm. it's a really hard job. We were asking you to reflect on from shutout to the current day, and you've got a microphone in front of you. Can you give us a couple of minutes of the sorts of things that you would talk about? Yeah, I. Um, when you asked me that, I, I was like, oh, yeah. I'm... You know, so ironically, you know, in the last, um, you know, six months or so, the the federal government has done a consultation to inform the next draft um, mm. of the National Disability Strategy. So they've done the first part of it and they keep promising that there's going to be um, some more. So, and I saw and I've read the kind of interim report that came out from those first consultations. And the part that is that I find incredibly frustrating is that, pretty much you could probably cut and paste shut out and very little has changed. Um, And so I am both as a person who really cares about change and wants to see better better things for people with disability and their families in this country, that's heartbreaking. It's kind of heartbreaking and in sort of both a policy and kind of social change sense. And then it's like personally heartbreaking too. Um, And so um, I, I... with the exception of the NDIS. And so I have mixed feelings about that because on the one hand, the NDIS is this incredible thing that I've helped um, fight for and has become a reality. But on the other hand, it is true that it has sucked all of the oxygen out of the room and there has been very little progress in other kind of areas. And so um, uh, kind of what I'm sort of thinking about kind of saying is that, you know, okay, so, you know, we're facing so many difficulties in so many other areas. We've tried one national disability strategy and that didn't work what's the plan for the next one yeah. what what is it that is going to actually drive the change that we want to see and just for some of our listeners who may not be aware the ndis only supports or provides support to about 10 percent of australians yep. with disability about 4 million australians identify as living with a disability and only about 460 of those will eventually become an ndis 60, participant 000. yeah sorry 460,000. 
Yeah. And also of those 460,000, the NDIS is about giving you the support you need to do things, go out and do things. But it is not about um, better public transport or getting helping get you a job or a, mm-hmm. your experience you know, in, in schools, I'm, you know, I'm incredibly concerned at where we're going in education at the moment. Um, it should be an area that we are progressing in and actually outcomes for students, I feel, with disabilities are actually going backwards. Just while we're talking about education, Kirsten, you told me some really amazing statistics about the educational outcomes of inclusive education, which maybe I'm the only person in the world that would shock, but they were great. And maybe you can tell our listeners in case... Well, I I mean, I think we've been talking about inclusive education for the last kind of 30 kind of years. And basically, if you talk to the researchers and the academics in the field, they will tell you there's absolutely zero evidence um, that segregated education delivers better outcomes for kids with disabilities. But we continue to fund it, despite the fact that the evidence shows that it delivers poorer outcomes than, you know, being educated amongst you know, amongst your peers. And so, and I think with the advent of things like NAPLAN and the My School website and the focus on VCE results, um, we're actually going backwards in, st- in, in, in schools in sure. trying to say, hey, it's the job of schools to educate kids um, and get them out the door. Now it's become the job of schools to get them a score. Yeah. And of course, if you're interested in scores, you don't want kids with disability in your school that are going to drag down kind of your score so um so you know i will use a personal example is that sophie um went to the local primary school um and the two local high schools in our area for whom the primary school was a feeder to the those local high schools would not have sophie in their school Mm. i actually i'd be interested in exploring something with you kirsten the the, probably the best program i've ever been involved in was working with eight children with a disability preschool, 12 kids without um, disability in preschool. And the preschool had to be completely redesigned to meet everybody's needs because you couldn't have that bigger group in it and just do some stuff off to the side. As a result of redesigning it to meet all the kids' needs, everybody benefited. So I'm just trying to follow through the logic. We've just pulled our seven-year-old out of mainstream school for exactly the NAPLAN reasons. She doesn't have a disability, but this is not good for her. No. And what we want is social, holistic human beings that learn in their own particular ways. So I believe if we set up systems that meet everybody's needs and we include people with disabilities, everybody benefits. And that's what the research shows. So the research shows that when you include kids with disabilities in the classroom, everybody benefits. Um, And the reason that I think that happens is because teachers have to think about what they're teaching and they have to think about teaching to a whole bunch of different kids who all have different learning styles and who who are all a little bit different. It makes you think... Content, concentrate on what is it that I'm trying to get across. Um, and the other evidence shows is that particularly when you include kids with an intellectual disability, uh-huh. which my daughter does, that helps the kids who um, and the kinds of strategies that you would use to assist Sophie actually benefit the kids who are really struggling. But included the, is not a teacher's aid up the back. Yeah, providing it's not a teacher's aid yeah. up the back. And so, yes, yeah, so the re- research basically says everybody is better off. Kids with disabilities are better off. Kids without disabilities are better off. Um, when you educate uh, kids together. And the other reason that I'm really passionate about it is because 
I think it's the way you get social change. Uh-huh. Is that I think that the kids who go to school with Sophie will not will not have the same kind of attitudes to people with disability as those who don't, uh-huh. because they've grown up alongside her. She's just one of, in this case, she's one of the girls or she's one of the kids, um, and it changes the way they see disability. So if we want, you know, we, Viva the Revolution. If we want the revolution to come, it starts with kids, and the more we pull kids out of schools um the less i just think we're entrenching the really negative attitudes towards people with disability as well as poor kids with disabilities are getting you know really crappy educational outcomes everybody loses this seems like such a cliched question i wouldn't normally ask it but do you have a social change uh idol or a guru or someone (laughs) that you deeply respect right it was a cliche question (laughs) (laughs) uh no, funnily, you know, funnily enough. No, in um, some ways I sort of expected that. No, no, I, I, I don't. I mean, I have my, um, there's my academic kind of, you know, things that I kind of follow. But um, it's more, I, I just think that I'm just driven by the fact that this kind of overarching sense of fairness and kind of we have like, and that the joint's in pretty bad shape and we need to do something about it. Mm-hmm. I kind of, rather than kind of following a sort of particular philosophy. Do you, Dad? Um, no. 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 You've got the microphone. Is there anything you... We've taken a lot of your time. Is there anything you want to tell us that we haven't asked? Uh, No, only only that I'm going to say that um, I... This isn't bullshit about EAC belonging to the people who participate in it. Um, uh, And um, what I've been trying to do through the last couple of years with EAC, particularly when we're doing community forums and getting out and talking to people, is that you brought um, uh, disability issues to public awareness. You, you guys were the ones that did this, not, not us and not me. You guys did it. So now we're here, um, don't take a backward step yes we've got to um, fix the NDIS but there's also potential once things are on a bit more of an even keel is there okay go what's next it doesn't matter which area in life you look at um, uh, whether it's employment whether it's um, housing whether it's healthcare. Um, uh, the gap between the life outcomes and the life chances of people with disability and the rest of the community is absolutely shameful and disgraceful in a country as wealthy as Australia. We, we just accept um, that 50% of people in, uh, live in poverty and we don't bat an eyelid. This week we've had Royal Commission hearings where we have heard from people with disability and their families that doctors have given them a substandard level of care because they had a disability. And we're all standing around and accepting that. Um, and so my kind of um, thing is that, yep, EAC um, gave people an opportunity um, and a platform and a way to bring um, uh, change about. Um, but we have to keep kicking against the bricks um, and take on all, uh, the fight in all these other areas if we ever want um, people with disability to have the same opportunities as other people in the community. And I care um, about this on a big social change level and I also care about it on a really personal level. I've got three kids and the life chances of two are radically different from the life chances of one and I'm not prepared to stand 
for it and I want it to change and I guess the thing is is that it doesn't matter how you do it in big or small ways we can't let that go and we've created a momentum and we've created a movement and we've created awareness now we have to keep pushing for it gosh we're smart Evie um well, yeah. <laughs> yeah we knew we knew Kirsten was going to be great and we were right uh, that, that, that was... you see we have no problem taking credit <laughs> <laughs> it's true so Thank you, Kirsten Dean. I love the image you're saying, you know, don't get in a formidable mum's way when she wants to make social change because this one's going to do it. Yep. Hashtag just a mum. Thank you for everything you've done with Every Australian Counts. Thank you for everything you've done with the National Disability and Care Alliance. Thank you for the shutout report. And, yeah, you don't get a lot of the credit, but you certainly deserve it. So thank you. Thanks. Um, I'm going to say a very embarrassed thanks. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to Disability Done Different Candid Conversations, a podcast by DSC that's produced by Maya Thomas. Today we've been talking to Kirsten Dean, who is the campaign director of Every Australian Counts. And if you've liked this podcast, please subscribe at disabilityservicesconsulting.com.au slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts.